You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, I am honored to bring you Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Dr. Seneff is a queen amongst queens in the scientific community. She is a senior lead researcher at MIT. She is the author of Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment. And on this episode, she goes into specifically what it's doing to us as a human species. We're in trouble, you guys. She also talks about her concerns with the dangers of the mRNA gene therapy, quote unquote, vaccines. This is a heady episode. You're going to want to take notes. You're probably going to want to listen to it twice. And I hope you'll share it out with the world at large because everybody needs to understand what's going on here. Let's jump in. Dr. Stephanie Senoff, thank you so much for coming on the Dr. Tina Show. I am a huge fan. I have been for a long time, and I'm really honored that you made the time today. So thank you for being here. My pleasure. I'm I'm delighted to be here. Yes. You always have so many wonderful, mind-blowing things to teach me whenever I, I listen to podcasts that you've been on or read your book. You are the author of Toxic Legacy, a book about glyphosate and Great book. Everybody should read it. Everybody should understand what they're dealing with. We're going to talk about glyphosate, deuterium, and hopefully we can get to some information about the COVID vaccine because you were uh, head author on a paper that uh, I had your co-author, Dr. Greg Nye, on the podcast some months back to talk about. So we got a lot to cover. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me about deuterium, first of all, because I don't know anything about it. We'll start with deuterium (laughs) because it's it's actually very exciting for me. And I I didn't know, I mean, I knew what deuterium was from forever ago. It's heavy hydrogen. It's, um, it's It's a hydrogen atom with an extra neutron. So it's twice as heavy as hydrogen. It's like you have different forms of oxygen and carbon. You have carbon-14. You know, it's like carbon-14. It's another isotope of hydrogen. There's hydrogen, deuterium, and tritium. And deuterium became famous really during the period when they developed the atom bomb because it was necessary for that. It was it played a role in the development of the atom bomb. And that was when they actually figured out how to make um, water that was made out of deuterium almost exclusively. They could do water that was, had lots and lots of deuterium in it. So water is H2O and um, two hydrogens and an oxygen. And water, of course, is you know basic for life. And um, hydrogen is by far the most common atom in the body. Um, I think it's like over 90% of the atoms in our body are hydrogen atoms, because it's so tiny, you know? Something like, six, and it's just a huge amount of hydrogen in the body. And um, deuterium is, is present in nature at, um, at a low concentration. One in, one in, it's 155 parts per million, so 155, uh, molecule atoms of deuterium for every million atoms of hydrogen in water, for example. But it's pervasive in our environment. It's natural. It's not like it's a toxic chemical that some you know somebody's making, like glyphosate is. So it's a natural element. But what's cool about it is that the Russians have figured out that deuterium matters in biology, and um, they figured that out because they found these people living up in Siberia who were really super healthy. They didn't get sick and they lived forever. You know, they were 120 years old. I mean, they just were, had longevity. They had healthy, um, you know, just healthy living. And they couldn't figure out why. You know, why were they so healthy? Because their food didn't look all that good. You know, they can't grow a lot of fresh fish. It was a very short growing season. They ate a lot of, you know, meats and stuff. Fish probably, um, you know, maybe even... Um, seals, I don't know what all they ate, but they didn't eat a lot of fresh vegetables. And so, or fruits, they didn't have any fruits probably, you know, so, but they were really healthy. So they were trying to figure out why. And then some scientists finally figured out that it was their water 
that was keeping them healthy. And that was because their water was low in deuterium. It has naturally, it's glacier water. So the glacier, the ice actually traps the deuterium. And so the, the water that, you know, that leaves the ice is, high, is low in deuterium. It's depleted. So like 100, it's like 80 or 90 parts per million as opposed to 155 in seawater. So they got, um, they got less exposure to deuterium in the drinking water or anything that came from water um, in their diet, low deuterium. That was what kept them healthy. And then the opposite side of that is high deuterium. And so when they started doing the atom bomb thing, they figured out how to make water that was like 60% deuterium. So tons of deuterium, way not natural at all. And they were curious what would happen if I fed this water to the rats, right, to see what would happen. And nobody had a clue what would happen. But what happened was amazing because these rats got really violent. They started beating up on each other. After a couple, after one day, they got really violent. They got voraciously hungry. Um, and then after about six or seven days, they basically keeled over and died. They got really lethargic, you know, so the ones that were still able to fight were beating up on the ones that were just lying there, take me, you know, I'm over. And so they, they all died after about nine days, they were all dead. And this was something like, I think it was something like 60% deuterium, so very high concentration of deuterium in the water, in the drinking water. And the water tastes essentially like water. So this is a good way to poison somebody, give them some high deuterium water that won't know what's happening and you can kill them oh, wow. that way. So, so isn't that they, interesting? You said it made them voracious too. They wanted to eat more. Very hungry and very uh, angry, like just really um, aggressive. Very, very aggressive. Sounds like Americans right now. I know. I was thinking that too. I was like, okay, we're getting poisoned by glyphosate. So we've got a deuterium problem. And that's why we're so angry all the time. It's probably partly the case. Seriously. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so that was really, and it turns out, and then, so the Russians did the studies to figure out why the deuterium was so important. And in the studies, they found out that there were uh, enzymes that know how to pick and choose. So they, these enzymes are really special that are able to say, you know what, oh, that you've got deuterium on that molecule. I'm not going to touch you. I'm not going to go there. Oh, here's one with hydrogen. Oh, good. I'm going to take that hydrogen and put it here on this product. And I'm going to guarantee it's not deuterium. So they actually have this very fancy biophysical mechanism for trapping a few water molecules inside a hydrophobic space. And then you sort of, um, and the whole process is just like deuterium can't work. So it, it's quite amazing. Some of these, and some of these um, enzymes are really good at uh, picking hydrogen over deuterium. And so those enzymes are used by biology to make um, something called NADH or NADPH. There's two of those. You've probably heard of them, right? Yep. And those are critical in metabolism. They're, they're all over the place, moving back and forth with the H, without the H. And most of the enzymes that can put that H there know how to not choose D. They know how to make sure it's not D. It's not deuterium. And then the NADH and NADPH deliver that H to the mitochondria. And the mitochondria hate deuterium. So the mitochondria, the ATPase pumps in the mitochondria that make the ATP, if there's too much deuterium, in the, in the intramembrane space, it's like having too much sugar in the gas tank. They, they get really upset. So the, uh, the, the uh, enzymes actually break and they release reactive oxygen species. They can't make the ATP. They just like sort of fall apart because of the deuterium, because it's twice as heavy. It's, the, it's a proton motive force that, um, that is used as the energy to make the ATP. So you pump a whole bunch of protons into that intramembrane space and then they flow out through those ATPase pumps, they come back out on those little things that are those little right. circular things that are inside the mitochondria. Thus, the ATPase pumps, the protons are passing through there 
that's the force that actually uh, creates the ATP and also, of course, converts oxygen to water. And so, um, and that water is going to be deuterium depleted because it's coming from those protons that are deuterium depleted. The, the body packs into that intermembrane space a high concentration of protons that are not deuterons. And it does so because of all these fancy enzymes. It's really interesting. And there's another aspect of it that has to do with the sulfate um, in the glycocalyx because you have, um, you know, lining all the blood vessels. Greg and I probably talked to you about this. You have this gelled water, right? All the blood vessels, and that gelled water, the gel is formed primarily as a consequence of the sulfate. And there's sulfate attached to all the walls of all the blood vessels. Sulfate SO4 minus two, one sulfur, four oxygens minus two charge. And sulfate is super super important in the body for lots of things, but one of those things is for the circulation of the blood. And it, um, it gels the water along the linings of the blood vessels. And that gelled water is like ice. It traps deuterium. It traps deuterium. So the gelled water actually pushes out protons. This is the whole um, Jerry Pollock. Jerry's done a lot of work on that to show experimentally. So fascinating because when you have this gelled water that's called the exclusion zone water, um, it pushes protons out and it becomes a battery. So it, it gets negatively charged. And it pushes the protons out and the protons gather at the interface between the fluid water, which is the blood flowing through and the gel. So you can picture a lining of jello around along the blood vessel, fluid blood flowing in the middle and protons gathering at the boundary between the, uh, the gelled water and the ungelled water. And then those protons, I think, are gathered up and pushed into the cells along the cytoskeleton and delivered to the mitochondria as deuterium depleted protons. So that's another way to get a supply of uh, low deuterium protons for the mitochondria and for the um, lysosomes because the mitochondria and the lysosomes hook up to the cytoskeleton. And then I think those protons are, are carried in along the, um, along the wires, like an electrical wire. So the cytoskeleton is, is what this is structure that's kind of keeps the cell strong, but it also has a dual purpose as a uh, electrical supply from the, um, starting with the gelled water. Wow. See, every time I hear you talk, my mind goes, <laughs> <laughs> it's really fascinating stuff. So this glycocalyx, I understand it to be, I mean, critical to the health of our vasculature and it can, from what I understand, it can basically be eradicated and come back pretty quickly. Is that correct? That is correct. In fact, How? the heparin sulfate, heparin sulfate proteoglycans that are attached to uh, proteins that are attached to the membrane. So you have sort of, you have the cell membrane, which is, you know, fats and lipids, and they have the proteins sort of embedded in them. And then these proteins actually attach to the heparin sulfate and they hold it there in place. So the whole thing is to hold, then the sulfate is attached to the heparin sulfate. So the whole system is um, attaching sulfate, lining all the blood vessels in the glycocalyx via these proteins that are um, glycosylated proteins. So these are natural proteins that are have places where they can stick heparin sulfate to them. And then the heparin sulfate has places where you can stick the sulfate to them and they can have more sulfate or less sulfate. Like there's a huge range of their capacity to have sulfate. And depending upon the supply of sulfate, they could be deficient. So the heparin sulfate could be there, but it has too little sulfate. sulfate. It's depleted in sulfate. And when that happens, then the gel is not as strong. The battery is not as strong. The energy is not as, supply is not as good. And the deuterium problem is bigger. So all of that happens with the lack of sulfate lining those blood vessels. 
And then there's also heparin sulfate in the brain that's very strongly linked to autism. I've found some amazing evidence, both from mouse studies and human studies, looking at autistic brains post-mortem and looking at uh, and, and doing mouse experiments with uh, messing up the heparin sulfate in the brain ventricles. Inside those you know, ventricles are sort of fluid-filled cavities in the middle of the brain. They have heparin sulfate in there as a principal uh, component of what's in there which gels the water there and which also keeps the brain protected from injury. Cause that's another issue with the gel. If there's not enough gel and you get hit on the head, you know, yeah. you're, you're going, your, your neurons are getting damaged, but if there's gel, it can kind of keep those neurons from getting damaged. So I think that's another issue with concussion and sort of post concussion syndrome and all of that. I've written about that actually, cause I think the insufficient sulfate supply in the brain is a serious problem for vulnerability of the neurons to injury from trauma. Wow. So how, what is the driving factor of the low sulfate? Is it poor diet? Is it poor health? Glyphosate. It's glyphosate. Big time. And I wrote about it in my book. I wrote a lot about sulfate and glyphosate in my book. I have more than one chapter that gets into that topic because it's so clear to me. That was something that I zeroed in on with autism before I knew about glyphosate. I was aware that autistic kids have a problem with sulfate. And, and there was a, a woman uh, who, who studied, she, she treated autistic kids. Uh, Rosemary Waring was her name. Uh, she may still be around, but uh, she, in the 1990s, she wrote stuff in the 1990s about the sulfate. She said, there's something wrong with sulfate in these kids, the, the autistic kids. They're not able to manage sulfate correctly. And they were actually excreting sulfate at high levels in their urine but they had deficiencies in sulfate in their body, in their blood, and in their and in general, the sulfated molecules were deficient in the in the in the body. And they, she suspected that they were unable to sulfate phenols, phenolic compounds. So there's basically gut microbes produce these phenolic compounds like um, uh, P-cresol. Have you heard of P-cresol? That's uh, something that's produced by Clostridia species. But there's various. Um, um, polyphenolic compounds that can be very, really toxic, that toxins that are produced by pathogens in the gut. And of course, glyphosate messes up the good guys in the gut. So the pathogens overgrow and then they produce these toxic uh, phenols. And then the, normally they go to the liver and the liver adds sulfate to them to make them water soluble. And then they get secreted, uh, excreted in the urine through that process. But the liver becomes incapacitated in its ability to add sulfate to things which means that these toxic uh, non-water soluble molecules become more toxic and they get into the brain and they cause damage there. So that's one problem. And she showed, uh, and so there was a study that was published just a, last year. I was so delighted to see that study because it was specifically looking at sulfation problems in autism. And they found this phenolic, they looked in the gut, uh, they found that phenol sulfation, so adding sulfates to phenols in the gut severely uh, problematic. They had, the enzyme didn't work. And then they also identified uh, problems in, in the blood with uh, enzymes that would add sulfate. And then the most amazing thing was after the, they got post-mortem data on the pineal gland, which is right there at the base of the ventricles. And they found catastrophically low levels of heparin sulfate in the pineal gland and catastrophically low enzymatic activity of the enzyme that adds sulfate to heparin sulfate. That was so perfect because that's what I've been saying. I've been saying these kids can't sulfate things. They get insufficient heparin sulfate in the brain and that disrupts the development of the brain. 
the heparin sulfate is critical for the maturation of the neurons coming out of the precursor cells in those brain ventricles. They mature and they grow and the brain develops in the uterus, you know, in utero, the development of the brain critically depends on that heparin sulfate, which is just depleted in autism. So I think it's critical even in um, prenatal, but also after birth, um, continuing to have problems with the sulfate, ability to sulfate things. And so what happens actually, free sulfate will gel the blood so that the body keeps the sulfate levels, just individual sulfate molecules will gel the blood. So the body wants to keep the levels of sulfate in the blood very low. And, but it needs to get sulfate moved around to various places to deliver it. And so it attaches it to all these carrier molecules, which are really interesting molecules. There's a whole class of molecules in those polyphenol compounds, all these. Uh, and of course, that's actually the aromatic amino acids, which come out of the shikimate pathway, which glyphosate blocks. So you end up with a deficiency in those aromatics. And normally the aromatics get a sulfate stuck onto them every time they're shipped out. And they carry the sulfate to the brain. So they're supplying sulfate to the brain through that process. And then there's all the sterols, I mean, there's the cholesterol, vitamin D, uh, all the uh, hormones, the sex hormones, cortisol, all of those guys are sulfated in transit. And on all of these molecules, these two big classes, the aromatics, which becomes the phenols, which becomes the neurotransmitters, uh, serotonin, melatonin, the skin tanning agent, melanin, all of them are sulfated. And there's also the thyroid hormone which is sulfated. So all these things get a sulfate added to them to be shipped around. That's partly because it makes them water soluble so they can go around easily in the blood, but also because they're moving that sulfate around and getting it to where it needs to go. So it's both the transport of the sulfate and the transport of these molecules that carry the sulfate that gets disrupted when there's not enough sulfate. And the problem is, a big problem is that glyphosate disrupts the enzyme that converts sulfate into the active form of sulfate, which is called PAPS, phospho. <laughs> Adenosylphosphosulfate, PAPS, and uh, Greg might have talked about that because he's big on that one too. But PAPS synthase is a really fancy, fancy enzyme um, that has critical susceptibility to glyphosate damage through this glycine substitution problem. So glyphosate is, I believe it's, I'm very confident that I'm right that glyphosate is substituting for glycine during protein synthesis. And that is its critical, unique aspect of toxicity that no other molecule that I'm aware of has. It's unique to glyphosate. It gets into proteins by mistake in place of glycine. And that is super, super critical. And it especially does so at highly conserved glycine residues that bind to phosphate. And that's where you need, um, that's what comes into play with this phosphoadenosyl phosphate. Sulfate cannot be made because that enzyme is getting wrecked by the glyphosate uh, through the substitution for glycine. So I think that's super, super critical. And so when you can't activate the sulfate, you can't put it anywhere you're stuck with free sulfate and you're going to gel the blood. So you've got a really big mess. You know, The blood barriers are not, the, the boundaries are not good and, and the blood flow is not good. Everything's a big mess. Wow. So let's back up a second. Let's go back to the deuterium. How does that play into this? So the sulfate builds the gel and the gel traps the deuterium. So by virtue of trapping the deuterium and all that gelled water lining the blood vessels, the blood itself is low in deuterium. It's pulling the deuterium out of the blood. So the blood supply, the water there is low in deuterium. And then that goes into other places and basically keeps everything low in deuterium. You want to trap the deuterium in the gel everywhere that you can. Everywhere that you have gel, you trap deuterium in it. If you have less gel systemically, you have less trapped deuterium. You have more high, higher concentration of deuterium. 
in the water, in the non-gelled water, which is where all the action is. That's where all the enzymes do their thing. So anytime you're trying to do some kind of catalytic reaction, you're more likely to get a deuterium molecule in your, a deuterium atom in your product just because there's more of it around. So the idea is to keep the deuterium levels in the fluid water as low as possible and by trapping the deuterium in the gel. So you want to have a lot of gel and you don't have a lot of gel if you don't have a lot of sulfate. And then one way around it is phosphate actually. So phosphate also gels water. That's quite interesting. And, and this, and, and glyphosate works. Uh, well, I wrote about it in my book and from theoretically, from what I've read, I would imagine I'm, I'm suspecting that glyphosate um, cat increases the activity of enzymes that puts, put phosphate onto things and interferes with the activity of enzymes that take it off. So you have all this, uh, all these enzymes that put phosphate on, take phosphate off, all these different molecules that are affected by that change, especially the proteins. Proteins get phosphorylated in various places and phosphorylation can either, act, some of the proteins get activated by phosphorylation, others get suppressed. It's a really complicated system, but there's the enzymes that put the phosphate on and the enzymes that take the phosphate off. And those two work as a yin and yang to keep the phosphate levels balanced. But what glyphosate does is is overreactive putting it on and underreactive taking it off. So you end up with a lot of excess phosphate attached to the proteins inside the cell. And this is all catalyzed by calcium uptake, which glyphosate has been shown experimentally to cause. So glyphosate causes calcium uptake into the cells. That can eventually cause calcification of the arteries for the heart, for example. But that calcification launches this cascade that starts putting phosphate on everything and really, really changing the metabolic behavior of the cell in a big way, um, which can eventually lead to things like cancer. So it's um, that's another part of the dysfunction. You've got too little sulfate, too much phosphate. The phosphate is gelling the water, which is helping to trap the deuterium. So it's serving a useful role. And I think it's kind of a, a back, it's a sort of second generation system when the sulfate's deficient, the cell can use phosphate to compensate for that, you know, to gel the water using phosphate instead of sulfate. I actually think that's what's going on, but that's, I mean, that's just something I've thought of. It's not something I've read, so, but that makes sense to me, you know. This episode of the Dr. Tina Show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my online store. We can all use a bit more resilience right now, so I bottled it. Resilience is an optimal adrenal support to promote energy and stamina. Resilience features a comprehensive blend of nutrients and botanical extracts targeted to support the body's responses to stress. It's designed to promote adrenal physiological functions by supporting the adaptogenic response to promote optimal energy production, stamina, and the management of everyday stressors. Adrenal glandular tissue sourced from Argentinian bovine to safeguard purity rounds out the ingredient profile. While I can't make any specific health claims, tell you how to dose it, or make individual health recommendations, I can tell you how they work. As always, check with your provider before beginning any supplement regimen. Listeners of The Dr. Tina Show can enjoy 10% off Resilience by using the code RESILIENCE10 over inside my store at store.drtina.com. That's D-R-T-Y-N-A. Again, head to store.drtina.com and use code RESILIENCE10 for 10% off. So basically glyphosate is causing a complete nightmare biochemically in the body because it's not allowing you to gel correctly. And when you can't gel correctly, you end up with an excess of deuterium that isn't being cleared. Yes. That's I understand. Right. I'm just trying to put it in terms for the audience. Okay. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And so it's all about gelling. And so if you can't gel with sulfate, you can gel with phosphate. 
But now you've got a completely different system in your cell. It's a whole different policy, a metabolic policy that's very different with all that extra phosphate. Which may be problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because I do understand, I do remember phosphorylation. And like you said, uh, sometimes that activates and sometimes that deactivates. It's so fascinating. It needs to be really complicated too. It's even in a single enzyme. They find, they have to figure this out bit by bit, you know, these experimental scientists who go in and they say, well, let's put a phosphate here and see what happens. Oh, that caused it to go stop, you know, reacting. Put one over here. Oh, that makes it work, work better. So it's like even different phosphates, you know, in different parts of the same enzyme can have directly opposite effects. So it's extremely complicated. And there's an intricate, you know, signaling mechanism that's in play in the biology. It's so, so complicated. You can read these, uh, papers and your eyes glaze over, you know, with all the different things that are going on with all the different reactions that take place and the, and the signaling and the control elements. It's just amazing. The biology is amazing, really, really complicated. But I think there's kind of a high level theme there that people are missing that with respect to this sulfate versus phosphate problem that's wow. showing up with the glyphosate. Yeah. Just one of the many reasons why glyphosate is so problematic. I, I, I remember reading about it not being so much the glyphosate that was the problem. I mean, you're telling, you're showing direct uh, issues with glyphosate, but you know, in the studies they say, oh, it's, it's not that bad for you. It's don't worry about it. But I I came across something showing that it was the, what it was combined with to make it stick to the leaves. The adjuvants. Yeah. Yeah. Was causing that combo was particularly toxic for humans. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. Yes. There's been several papers that have come out that have shown that the other things they add to Roundup, they have this kind of secret formula, you know, patented and protected. And so you can't even know what it is. So it's really difficult to study, but people have done studies uh, comparing Roundup to the pure glyphosate and the Roundup they found in certain circumstances is much more toxic. Even they've said a thousand times as toxic as the, as the glyphosate itself by itself. And, uh, and they've said it's both because the, um, the other ingredients allow the glyphosate to be taken up more easily by the cells, but also because it's toxic in and of itself. The, the extra ingredients really disrupt the membrane of the cell and cause the cell to kind of bleed out, you know, so it really messes up the cell. And then it allows the glyphosate to get in, which then causes, the, lets the glyphosate do its damage. So it's both a combination of activating the glyphosate and being itself very toxic. And and this is acute toxicity. I make an exception and people don't realize this, that glyphosate, I call it insidiously cumulatively toxic because um, it, it, it it's not by itself, it's not acutely toxic. You, you, that's why they say it's safe. You know, they don't, they, they can do these experiments short term and they don't see anything. They, they cleverly defined that the experiment only had to go for three months with animal studies. If you didn't see anything after three months, you're good to go. And, you know, Seralini, uh, he's a, he's really studied glyphosate well. And also those, he's the one that really started the whole idea of the adjuvants being also very, very toxic. And um, he found, he did an experiment on rats where he, he did, he did the same experiment, basically repeated the experiment that Monsanto had done, uh, but he did it for the whole lifespan. Monsanto stopped at three months. So it's the same dose as a low dose of glyphosate. And they tried glyphosate and Roundup and even the GMO crops independently. So all three of those, you know, three different, and then they had the control group and all of the groups that had were exposed to the um, GMOs or the Roundup or the glyphosate had a lot of problems, but they didn't show up until four months. By three months, they were looking, you couldn't tell. By four months, they started to have problems. By the end of their life, you know, the, the females had massive mammary tumors. 
the males had kidney damage and liver damage. Both genders had uh, sexual dysfunction, you know, reproductive issues, and they died young. So all of that happened, but it took time. Right. So that's where that's where glyphosate is so dangerous because the government says, oh, it's beautiful. It's not toxic to humans. You know, it, it kills the weeds. It's so great. It cheapens the food, makes you be able to grow lots of food cheaply. What's not to like about it? And as long as we believe it's not toxic to humans, that sounds good. But the fact is, it's it accumulates in your body. It, it, it grows. You get more and more glyphosate in your proteins over time that you are continually exposed. And at some point, something breaks and you get Alzheimer's, you know, or you get cancer or even you just get rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, you get something gut problems, of course, you know, acid yep. reflux, um, celiac disease, there's all these things, inflammatory gut, they're all going up dramatically in step with the rise in glyphosate uses. So ob- obesity as well, and diabetes and obesity, they're all going up in our society. We think, well, it's processed foods. And I think to some degree, that's true. The processed foods are very deficient in nutrients. You know, they're very, um, they're not really foods. You sort of take the food apart into chemicals and mix the chemicals together to make pseudo foods. That's how I describe the soy protein bars, for example, Yes, is a classic example of that. But I wouldn't eat a soy protein bar even if it was organic. You know, they're just ridiculous food. So I, I mean, eating whole foods is really important, but, um, but they are way underestimating the role that glyphosate plays in those diseases. I think it's a primary, I think it's primary in obesity, in diabetes, in Alzheimer's, in autism pancreatic cancer, kidney cancer, kidney disease, liver disease. I mean, there's a huge list, celiac disease, inflammatory gut, all of those things. It's primary. Glyphosate is the main reason why we're, we're seeing these diseases go up and they go up exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops. Yep. And I wonder too about ovarian cancer and ovarian is- issues, endometriosis. And Absolutely. Others it's in the tampons that people are. That's so scary, isn't it? That really is disturbing. And, you know, we have endometriosis and also polycystic ovary syndrome. Yep. And that one's an interesting one because I can show from data on glyphosate. There's a recent study that was done on, on girl babies. I don't know if you heard about this study. They've had some really cool studies coming out on glyphosate recently. People are starting to realize the researchers are thinking, oh, this chemical is toxic. I better go study it. Before they were like, well, this is so safe. Why would I waste money studying it? You know, But um, they're studying low-dose glyphosate and finding lots of things. So this one was really interesting because it looked at, pe- at women who were pregnant and they measured glyphosate in the urine. Uh, I think towards the end of the pregnancy, they measured the level of glyphosate in the urine. And then they have a metric they can use for girl babies. It's, a, it's, a, it's called the anogenital distance. You can imagine what it might be. Uh, and when it's long, it's an indicator of, of too much testosterone exposure in utero. It's a well-known metric for female babies that you can use to see if, um, if they were exposed to too much testosterone in utero. And then they found a statistically significant correlation between the level of glyphosate in the urine of these mothers and this distance in the, in the girl babies. And that, and that distance um, predicts PCOS. So the people who have a long one have a very high risk of, of developing PCOS, much higher, something like 18 times uh, what a, norm, a regular person would have, the risk of developing PCOS. And, uh, and PCOS is also linked to autism, both in the person who has it and in the offspring of that person. So um, it's all tied together with the glyphosate because glyphosate disrupts an enzyme called aromatase which converts testosterone to estrogen. So you end up with too much testosterone in the, in, in, during development, which has an effect on the male babies as well. And I think it's connected to autism. You know, the male, I think it might even be the reason why the boys have a much higher risk of autism because they, 
the girls naturally have more estrogen and it's the estrogen that's short. It's not enough estrogen because of this blockage in the conversion from, from testosterone to estrogen. So the boys don't get enough estrogen in their brain. The, there's actually, it's important for the boys to convert the testosterone to estrogen in the brain to develop the brain correctly. The estrogen is really important for brain development. That's why the girl babies are, have a more protection against autism than the boy babies do. But then they have this PCOS problem. And that, of right. course, is linked to uh, infertility. It's the most common cause of infertility is polycystic ovary syndrome. And of course, endometriosis is the other one. And that one, I just found a paper recently that's really interesting that showed that these heparin sulfate um, molecules in the in the endometriosis has a lot of these, this, this, these, these uh, molecules that have the sulfate. And... Um, I think it might have been chondroitin sulfate, actually. I'm forgetting. There's another one. There's heparin sulfate and chondroitin sulfate. I think it was chondroitin sulfate chains that actually have a sulfate attached on the end, which stops them from growing. So when the sulfate is there, the, the chain stops. If there's no sulfate, it keeps growing. So you end up with these very long chains of sulfate-deficient chondroitin sulfate that then kind of spill out of the uterus and cause this endometriosis problem. I think it's a problem of deficiency and the ability to add sulfate to the chondroitin sulfate in the, uh, in the, in the uterus. Wow. And the impacts of that on people's joints would be huge as well mm -hmm. Yeah, because of chondroitin sulfate in the, in the cartilage. Absolutely. Yes. The I think cardioglycan that's a, layer of their, your, of yes. your cartilage. Yeah. And of course there's the collagen as well, which is collagen is the most uh, common body, uh, protein in the body. 25% of the body's proteins are collagen molecules and uh, collagen has incredibly high levels of glycine. It has a long, long sequence of GXY, 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 where every third amino acid is glycine. And that's critical for the way it folds. It folds into this beautiful tri triple helix structure that gives it its properties of elasticity and strength and the ability to hold water, all these good things in the collagen that makes the bones strong, makes the joints strong, you know, very, very important for the health of the bones and joints. And those glycines are all vulnerable to glyphosate substitution. And when that happens, the heat, triple helix gets messed up and then um, the bone gets sick and the joint gets sick and you end up with, um, you know, various kinds of um, pain, you know, shoulder pain, yeah. knee, knee surgery, hip replacement surgery, all these surgeries we're seeing, I think are directly connected to the glyphosate accumulating in the collagen. Wow. And that makes me think of autoimmune disease because auto, all autoimmune diseases by nature are collagen disorder. It's all autoimmune diseases are the body attacking collagen. Would it be because it's misfolding and it's I think making so. and even more surface exposure to the it, immune system? Exactly. It makes it uh, not look like it should look anymore. And therefore it looks foreign because it's not folding correctly. And that's when, you know, when proteins don't fold correctly, um, the immune system gets upset with that. It, it doesn't, it doesn't think that's right. And so it, it attacks it. Um, I think that's going on with other proteins too. And I'm forgetting what it was now because there was one I had written about um, in my book, I think, and that it normally goes um, in a place in the membrane where it would be hidden um, from the immune system so that it doesn't, um, they don't attack it. But then but because of this heparin sulfate binding property, that's how it sticks to the surface. And instead of sticking to the surface, it gets loose and goes into the circulation and then the immune cells respond to it. And then you get an autoimmune attack on that protein. That's probably happening to a lot of proteins. I'm forgetting what the one was that I had studied. I'm sort of, <laughs> I got oh, so man. much information crammed in my head that I can't remember <laughs> what that one was. But, uh, I can't believe how much you just shared in 40 minutes. I'm like, 
That is, yeah, that explains, I mean, there's so many ways that we could come at this, but that what you just shared for the audience, go back and listen to that and take notes, you guys, because that explains a lot, a lot, a lot. And it's, this is, and what you're, what I'm hearing you say is that glyphosate is generationally accumulated as well, or it's impacting. I mean, we're definitely seeing impacts, but does the accumulation go to the offspring? Do we know? Because I know every woman is full of it. Oh, I know. And what's really disturbing is the epigenetic effects of exposure, um, even long after the glyphosate's gone. So this is what's happening now. Again, recent papers, last few years, several papers have come out where they have, they real, so there's, there's these people who understand about endocrine disruptors and also about epigenetic change. And they know that there's a particular critical period during the, um, during gestation, when if those, um, if the embryo is exposed to a toxin during that period, it's a period when the um, germ cells are, 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 are forming and the germ cells are very sensitive to any kind of exposure at that time. Like the, 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 the egg, uh, the female fetus um, creates its entire next generation of uh, germ cells before it creates its brain. Like it's very early, like in the first few months. The, 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 it's interesting that the, the first thing it wants to do is make sure the next generation is in place and then it can start to think about its brain. You know? So it's kind of curious how the development works. But it's in that period, that critical period in the first few months of pregnancy, if you're exposed, and you know that with thalidomide, for example, the way it whacked out those, you know, the mothers who got thalidomide um, during that first trimester, their kids ended up with no arms or no ears, you know, really devastating effects of that thalidomide. I don't know if you remember about the mm-hmm. thalidomide disaster in Germany. Um, but anyway, so this, so they, they knew about this critical period. And so that they, they've done experiments where they intentionally exposed the pregnant rat to glyphosate, low dose glyphosate exactly during that time. And only during that time, that short period when they knew it was critical for the germline. And then, um, they found, and then they studied, so it was very low dose. The, the rat was fine. The offspring were fine. They didn't look like they had any problems. They grew up, they had pups. They weren't fine. They had, they grew up, they had fun perhaps they were even worse off. So it basically got worse and worse with each generation in terms of, um, of diseases like diabetes and obesity and, and reproductive issues, all these things um, showed up in the later generations and they got worse by worse each, with each generation, all from that exposure of that great grandmother over that short period of time. It got, it got encoded in the epigenetics of the genome of those germ cells. They do these things with methylations, you know, all these different modifications that they do at the epigenetic level. That's not actually changing the DNA code. Right. You know, it's modifying with the methyls and the methyls have, again, like the phosphates, they have ways of turning things on, turning things off. So the methylation is really, really complicated and interesting, but it's um, those pathways get altered in an environment of toxicity that is remembered through multiple generations. So it's quite amazing. But this really means that right now we're seeing second generation, third generation glyphosate exposure. Um, And that's why I think the kids are getting sicker and sicker, even if they're not being exposed to glyphosate because their grandmother was, you know, because glyphosate has been around since 1975. Wow. Yeah. It's the the first time I realized that this stuff was dangerous, my Sadly, my parents used it freely all over our yard and I was at Costco and I had my daughter in the cart. She was a toddler and we had bought some. My husband picked it up and put it in the cart and the gal checking us out put gloves on to ring it up and then 
and I could smell it, you know, and uh, <gasps> oh my, the oh second my I saw her with glove, well, I won't even go down the glyphosate aisle now, but she, when she gloved up the second she gloved up, I had just started my first quarter of chiropractic college that, and we had an incredible professor who I would love you to meet someday. He, uh, Dr. Fred Colley, he really shed the light on a lot of things for us. And anyway, the minute she gloved up, I was like, oh my God, put it back, take it out. Haven't touched it since. I live on a farm and the adjacent farmland is a giant monocrop. It looks like an ocean. Oh and no. Every, oh my God. <laughs> every summer they spray it out. And last summer I was outside and I was across our field at my mother-in-law's house. And I was coming, I was walking across the field to get back to our house and it was evening. Oh. And in the evening, the winds come in off the ocean and it blows through. It's a wonderful time. We open all the windows and it's a wonderful time of night, but the wind came in, the sky looked beautiful. And all of a sudden I smelled that smell, that very oh. distinct smell. And I yes. looked at my dog and I looked out at the field <laughs> behind us and here was the truck with its giant oh. arms out spraying, spraying around up or whatever glyphosate all over the field. And, uh, I looked at my dog and I was like, run and we ran <laughs> as fast as we could inside. And I put towels in the wind, you know, wet towels in the doors. And I oh my. had a complete meltdown. <laughs> oh my, that's com- so awful. Complete meltdown. Cause I, I understood the dangers of glyphosate. I, I saw a, a, um, documentary called the future of food. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but I believe it was Jerry Garcia's wife who made it. And it was all about the dangers of Monsanto and glyphosate. And it was, I don't know, probably 20 years ago. And ever since then, I've been a little, I'm a little OCD about it, but, but, but for good reason, you just explained one of the, or I a know. few of the various reasons why we should all be very OCD about it. Cause it's, people just don't realize how toxic it is. That's the thing. And it's hard for them even to believe it when I say it, because they're like, well, the government thinks it's fine. You know, and they somehow trust the government to know what it's talking about, which is amazing to me. Because yeah, you see what else the government's doing. There's no reason <laughs> to trust them. Right. <laughs> yeah. We see where that's gotten us in the past yes. few years. <laughs> you guys. I have a special announcement. I am excited to invite my listeners of the Dr. Tina show to my brand new CBD store. I've got several products inside the store to suit everyone's needs. I looked for years for a supplier that checked off all the boxes on quality, and I am happy to tell you about the products I finally come up with. I've got two gummy products inside the store. Both are hemp extract CBD phytocannabinoid gummies. One that supports a more calm state with added L-theanine and another to shield your immune system with ingredients like zinc and vitamin C along with the CBD. I've also got a high potency, truly full spectrum hemp extract oil synergized with other naturally occurring phytocannabinoids and MCT oil. This results in fantastic absorption in the gut. This oil contains several naturally occurring cannabinoids and terpenes, terpenes are important, plus an added proprietary blend for a robust profile. It contains less than 0.3% THC, it's extracted from high quality CO2 extraction process, and it comes in both a straight oil form or a convenient soft gel, which I like to keep in my purse for on the go. I've also got an amazing topical cream that I utilize for pain. I've tried countless pain creams over the years and test drove them all on my mom. And she says this one is her absolute fave. Every product is rigorously tested and comes with a certificate of analysis that you can find on the product page on the website. So head over to drtinahemp.com and use coupon code DrTinaShow10 for 10% off your first order. That's Dr. Tina Hemp, all one word, D-R-T-Y-N-A, 
H-E-M-P.com and use coupon code Dr. Tina Show 10 for 10% off your first order. I can't wait to hear what you think of them. I want your take on all of this. The COVID vaccine, uh, there's a lot of problems. One of the ones that I have been driving is about interferon. Can you speak, and we're going to talk about a few things here, and I I just kind of want your take. I don't even have any bullet points to ask you besides the interferon piece, but can you start there and then tell me maybe your top three reasons why you think this is such a dangerous gene therapy? Yes, and that paper was really um, a challenge to write, but also for me, a lot of fun. I really enjoy uh, biology and this is the glyphosate is a great window on biology. As you can see, it helps you to figure out a lot of things about biology by virtue of how it breaks that breaks it. And the same thing is true for these vaccines. So I have really, I focused my research on glyphosate since about 2012. And then the last two years, I've really been focused on these vaccines because they are so fascinating and so, so dangerous. They're just like, they have analogies to glyphosate in the sense that um, the government's telling us they're perfectly safe, right? Safe and effective, safe and effective. I know otherwise. Uh, I'm very confident that I'm right. And it's, it's right up there with glyphosate. And the fact that we're forcing people to get it against their will just really drives me nuts. And of course, it's been approved for six-month-old kids now in this country. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable to me. And and with autism rates already going up every year, this, they just went up um, again dramatically. Nobody even hears about it anymore because it's not even news. You know, of course, the autism rates go up every year. It's just like that's just what happens. People don't seem to care, you know. But if you start injecting the kids with this, with these uh, mRNA vaccines, we're going to see the autism rates go through the roof. I think because it's going to it's going to really hurt their brain. But the um, the type one interferon is quite fascinating, and it it's basically that is a um, that's an early response of the innate immune system to any kind of uh, um, t- exposure, any kind of uh, you know either uh, cancer, for example, can control cancer or any kind of infection with anything, any kind of pathogen. Um, as soon as the cell becomes aware that there's a problem, it, 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 it triggers this type one interferon response. And what happens with these vaccines is that the immune cells, the immune cells actually take up the nanoparticles from the vaccine because it's just, it's a nanoparticle. It can go, any cell can take it up. You don't need an ACE2 receptor to get it. You know, it's different with the virus. The immune cells are not, don't have the ACE2 receptors, so they don't actually get infected with the virus you know, when it goes into the lungs. But the vaccine, they can't protect themselves from taking it up. So they go in to help the muscles out because the muscles are crying for help with that vaccine. And the immune cells also take up that nanoparticle and they start making lots and lots of spike protein, which is extremely toxic. And they're aware that it's extremely toxic. So they basically head into the lymph system to, to try to get the B cells and T cells to line up and make those antibodies. It's a, it's, it's a perfect machine for getting the B cells and T cells to make antibodies to the spike protein, which is the goal of the vaccine. Uh, as a goal, it achieves its goal very well, but it's, a, it's not a good goal <laughs> to have, you know, because it's such good antibodies that they actually end up attacking your own uh, human uh, proteins because the antibodies are matching certain pieces of the spike protein that are similar to pieces of human proteins, you end up with autoimmune diseases of various sorts as a consequence of those antibodies. That's one bad thing about those very high 
antibody responses. I'm getting off target here because there's a type one interferon. We'll get back to that. But those immune cells then are making um, lots of spike protein and they need to get rid of it. And so what they do is they package it up inside these exosomes, which are just little lipid particles. They're, they're different from the nanoparticles that it started with in the vaccine, but they're an excellent delivery system for distributing what the contents of that exosome to any other cell in the body. It basically can just distribute it everywhere throughout the body. So the immune cell is releasing these little little bubbles and these little lipid particles containing uh, the spike protein, but also containing these microRNAs that have been handpicked by the immune cell to suppress type 1 interferon. That's what they discovered experimentally in this, in this lovely paper that we wrote about in our paper. And it was done in India. They, um, they exposed these human cells to, basically, they gave them the vaccine. And that's what they did. They made these exosomes. They contained the spike protein, but they also contained these, these two microRNAs. That's 148A and 590, these two microRNAs. And those microRNAs are able to turn off the response to type 1 interferon. They, 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 they suppress certain proteins that are essential for that response. And so what happens then with a cell that picks up these exosomes is that it doesn't respond to type 1 interferons. But so they, um, the reaction, the normal reaction that would take place doesn't happen. So this makes the cells uh, susceptible to cancer and to infection. And what you see with the vaccine adverse event reporting system is, um, is reports of um, Bell's palsy and shingles. I mean, these are latent viruses that woke up and cause disease, you know, and even herpes, you know, the, the, the cold sores, all these kinds of things are showing up problems with uh, liver, uh, you know, hepatitis in the liver, all these different um, exposures that we have that normally don't cause us trouble. These things are all living in our body without trouble. But once you have suppressed that type one interferon response, they wake up and they cause trouble. And so that's what's happening. And then the other thing that's really scary is the cancer because the type one interferon is what keeps cancer in check. And so I know Greg Nye has told me that he's had patients who were, he treats patients who have term, you know, uh, stage four cancer and that sort of thing. And, um, and he said that the cancer had been in remission, but then once they got the vaccine, all of a sudden the cancer came back. And that's not at all surprising because that's because of this interference with the type one interferon response. The early response of the immune system is broken. Yes, that's exactly it. The early response of the immune system is broken, which leaves people vulnerable to all kinds, I mean, potentially all kinds of issues. Uh, Just to confirm that, I have several colleagues who um, hold the same designation as Dr. Nye. It's a naturopathic oncology diplomate, and uh, they've all reported the same that they've gotten. All of their patients, we predominantly as naturopathic doctors see autoimmune patients. That's a pretty common thing to walk in the door. All the autoimmune diseases are exploding again when they've gotten them under control. And then all of the cancer patients who they've gotten the cancer remission are presenting with all kinds of metastases and problems. And this is just coming, this is their clinical experience. I'm not saying any of this is, you know, coming out of a paper, but this is what my colleagues are telling me. So yeah. Okay. So that's bad. When I read that in your paper, I was like, this is not good. This is, this is very not good. Can you talk about those micro RNAs a little bit and what are they doing? Yeah, there's actually, there's now four that I've identified. Um, I've been, you know, digging through all this, lots and lots of papers coming out about these um, vaccines and also about the spike protein itself, you know, just experiments with the spike protein, which are useful for the vaccine because that's what the vaccine does. 
And um, and I've now identified four. There's those two that I just mentioned, 590 and 148A. And then there's also uh, 155, um, I think, and then uh, 146A. Uh, yeah, 155 is the one that is uh, connected to heart disease. Um, and that's what's causing, I think, the cardi- cardiomyocarditis. It's contributing to the uh, myocarditis that we're seeing in patients. You know, we're seeing uh, athletes, you know, we're seeing athletes drop dead from arrhythmias or whatever at record numbers. I've been seeing lots of reports of that. Um, you know, nobody's trying to confirm that it's the vaccine, but a lot of my friends are saying, oh, they got the vaccine. That's why they died. I mean, because we're just seeing all these cases of people, young people just suddenly dying without an explanation. Um, just very disturbing. And I think it, um, it's connected to these microRNAs. And I think it's probably the spike protein is so extraordinarily toxic and the cell has so extraordinarily much of it in, its, in itself. The, the, the vaccine is, is a perfectly designed engine for producing large quantities of spike protein in a hurry and to keep on doing it without stopping for days on end. I mean, all the way two months later, they still found spike protein in the lymph nodes of people who had been vaccinated two months before. That is incredible that it's still making the spike protein uh, that much later. Uh, and even the RNA, they even found the RNA, which is, of course, the thing that makes the spike protein. It survives forever because usually RNA only lasts a few hours. You know, the cell makes RNA, it makes some protein, it gets turned off, stop making the protein now, and then later on it gets, you know, destroyed. And this is happening usually just every few hours. The whole thing is gone. But this, these uh, mRNAs are designed uh, very carefully crafted to be unable to be broken down and also to be unable to be turned off. So it's quite amazing what they did with the design of these things. It's not at all the same RNA that the virus makes. It's very different. It codes for almost the same protein. Even there, they've changed it. They've put, got these two prolines they put in in the middle, which prevents it from uh, folding into the form that would go into the membrane. So instead, it gets stuck on the H2 receptor and disables it. So that's a problem too. I mean, this design, the way the protein is designed is problematic, but the RNA is really problematic because they put in all these methyl pseudouridines all across the board. Every time there's a uridine, they replaced it with a methyl pseudouridine, which they discovered. That was a big breakthrough in the technology because they discovered that's how you can keep it from getting broken down. The enzyme doesn't work anymore and it sticks around, but also it causes errors. It's a very... Um, it doesn't necessarily code true. So when it, it makes um, the protein, it can make a mistake. So let's talk about the spike protein binding to the ACE2 receptor and it doesn't come off. It just, mm-hmm. which is a terrible situation for the body because the whole angiotensin renin system. Exactly. Is- yeah. So the way I see it is you've got these um, immune cells in the spleen uh, making tons of spike proteins, sending out bubbles of ex- exosomes, and those exosomes are traveling along the nerve fibers. They travel very well along nerve fibers. They go up the splenic nerve to a center where they hook up with the vagus nerve and they go over to the heart. The vagus nerve can get you to the heart, to the brain, you know, to the liver, lots of good places to cause trouble. They go to the heart. The exosomes are delivered to the heart via the vagus nerve. This is what I think. This is sort of my theory. And then the exosomes contain those microRNAs that uh, that turn off that type 1 interferon response and also that induce an inflammatory response in the heart, which, of course, is the myocarditis. But then there's that MIR-155, which is very strongly linked to a heart attack. You can see there's a paper I found from before COVID, I think it was 2017, where they showed, um, they looked, they measured the MIR-155 in association with heart attack, and they found that um, 
much, much higher levels uh, than the, the normal cells had very little of it. And then there was just a huge amount of this MIR-155 associated with a heart attack. So it's just sort of, it's, it's it definitely is linked to the whole process that ends up causing heart damage uh, in a big way. And, and we looked at the data from the vaccine diversity reporting system in that paper. We talked about the heart as one of the topics. We had several different topics of problematic problem, you know, issues with the vaccines. And for the heart, we looked at the um, various database, and I think we found over 8,000 cases of various problems with the heart in terms of arrhythmias and tachycardia, heart attack, heart failure, cardiac arrest, all these things. Um, over 8,000 cases in the year 2021 linked to the uh, COVID vaccines. And out of the total cases, um, the percentage of the cases that had any of these issues, uh, 98% were COVID cases. 2% were everything else, the, the flu vaccine, the MMR, all the kids' vaccines, the, the shingle shot, all together were 2% of the cases where there were these heart problems. So it's a huge signal for heart injury in the vaccine reimbursement reporting system. And how the government can say, well, no, no, they're just, you know, this is just all coincidence, you know. The vaccine has nothing to do with the fact that this person died of a heart attack the next day. You know how they can say that with a straight face. I do not know. I, it's really weird. I, I've had people tell me that they they'll go to the hospital having issues, and the doctors and nurses. It's it's not only dismissed. It's like it's. I don't know if you ever read the Harry Potter books at all, but. <laughs> Voldemort yeah. was the evil guy and you weren't allowed to say Voldemort's name, right? He who yeah. shall not be named, right? That's how they referred to him. And it's uh -huh. like that. It's like that it's when you get into him, when you get into the medical setting, it's like this yeah, which shall so not be named. Strange. It's really, really strange how hypnotized people are. I don't, I don't, I cannot comprehend. I don't think I'm connected enough to the medical system to understand what's going on. I can see that it's happening, but it doesn't make any sense to me, you know? I, yeah, I, I don't know. A good portion of my profession, as I'm sure Greg Nye has told you, has drunk the Kool-Aid and are singing the song. And it's, it's just been a really wild few years watching this unfold. It's just been incredible. And, and you know, every, most of the people that are friends of mine are on board with exactly the way I think. And then I'm just like, why are there all these other people who don't get it? You know, how is it that they can't see it? That's really puzzling. Yeah. Yeah, well, it you know, I think it requires a level of thinking that is sometimes really uncomfortable, not because the truth is uncomfortable, that's one part of it, but actually sitting down and like reading your paper, I remember sitting there, I had to take it in in several sessions with a highlighter and notes, and it still was, you know, there's still a lot of it I don't understand, and it's it takes a level of discipline, and so yes. I, I was talking to Dr. Paul Thomas, Earlier uh -huh, yes, today. yes, I know him. Yes. I, I, he and I spoke at a conference in Texas together. It was really great. So hi guys. He spoke very highly of you. I just interviewed him this morning for the podcast. And um, I said on there, I'll repeat it. The, you know, those who don't want to read, those who don't want to sit down and read are just much more easily swayed. And that includes medical professionals, you mm -hmm. know, part of, I thought part of our job was to sit down and actually dissect studies on the regular and keep up. But Apparently, that's not the case. Yeah, I think many doctors are so busy treating patients that they don't have time to read. And they, and, they, and pharma just feeds them all this data about how to treat, right, with the drugs. And they just follow the rules. And they don't, they're probably less educated on a lot of this stuff than a random person who just happens to be 
trolling the internet to find out this stuff, you know? Well, you would think that's what I keep hearing from them. Oh, we're, you don't see patients anymore, Tina. So you're, we're busy seeing patients. I'm like, well, last time I checked, part of our job was keeping up with the data. I've always believed that, you know, it's like when they um, dispelled the cholesterol myth early on in my career and people were still coming in saying, oh, my doctor said cholesterol. And I was like, the doctor's (laughs) not keeping up, you know, keep up. Like, that's, (laughs) that's, <laughs> I I, I've always, I've always, I've been in medicine a long time and I have prior to actually having a degree, I worked in medicine and uh, part of it's keeping up. It's just, Absolutely. I think Absolutely. it's part of the job. And of course the, the story changes a lot too, because the whole thing with the statin drugs, which is quite interesting. And that's another topic that I have gotten into and, um, and the, the whole low cholesterol diet and statin drugs and all of that, which is just completely broken. It is. It's all, it's, that was one of the first cues to me early on that like, oh, there's something awry here in the, in the narrative around that. Can I ask you um, about thrombocytopenia for a second? Cause you talk about it in your paper. Yes. Will you, will you touch on that real quick and then I'll let you yes. go. <laughs> no, sure. No, that's really interesting. And that's the one that I've been still poking around trying to figure out more because I think it has in part to do with the, uh, with a prion-like aspect of the spike protein. And we did not, I don't think we talked about it directly with respect to the thrombocytopenia in that paper. But another paper came out recently that I read that was quite, quite fascinating. And they were proposing in that paper that the um, spike protein is interacting with thrombin. So it. Uh, so one thing I think, I mean, these are sort of ideas I've had since that paper was written um, with the cationic lipid. You know, the cationic lipid is positively charged. They, they put that into the vaccine. That's part of it. its um, charm. That's <laughs> part of its dangerous aspects. It's just an unknown cationic, synthetic cationic li- lipid that's positively charged. And what that means is that it's... Um, it's, it's so these lipid particles, these lipid nanoparticles, are not going to are going to do a bad thing for the zeta potential of the blood. And I don't know if you have heard about zeta potential, but that's another very interesting aspect of the blood, which has to do with the negative charge. You know, the red blood cells have negative charge. All the particles that are suspended in the blood typically have are negatively charged, and that keeps them repelling each other so they don't stick together, and that keeps the red blood cells separated, which is really important that they don't coagulate you know right and so um the cationic lipid and i there was an amazing paper that was um wasn't looking at the covid vaccines but it was looking at mrna technology and it was coding for a protein called erythropoietin so it was a different protein from the spike protein but otherwise it had this cationic lipid and they looked at the cells and what they did and it turned out they took up the nanoparticles and then they released the exosomes they talked about the exosomes and in the exosomes, they had the entire intact RNA for the for the protein, along with one to one counterpart particles of, of the cationic lipid. So it was paired up. However many nucleotides were in the protein, there were that many cationic lipid molecules in the exosome. It was matched, which was quite interesting because it was canceling out the negative charge of the um, of the of the uh, RNA with the cationic lipid. So this makes a neutrally charged particle, exosome. But neutral charge is not good because you want negative charge to get um, the zeta potential to be high so that the blood will circulate. And so these things being, these exosomes being poured out without the negative charge, it seems to me that's going to mess up the zeta potential of the blood, which is going to cause huge problems, particularly the red blood cells could just get all stuck together and not flow through the capillaries. And you could get, you know, 
um, no flow situation, uh, which can really cut off this oxygen supply to the tissues and all that sort of thing, but also could precipitate uh, the, the, the cause the red blood cells to precipitate out and form um, basically blood clots, you know, to be contributing to the, or the hemoglobin in the red blood cells to contributing to the, to the blood clots. But the platelets, of course, are the ones that uh, produce the, the um, um, fibrin. The fibrin is going to be triggered by the stresses of the blood uh, to form. And then what this other paper that I referred to earlier talked about was that the spike protein appears to bind to the fibrin and to make the fibrin complex much sturdier, much more, much more difficult to, to remove. So it basically forms these fibrin clots. And then normally you would have um, fibrinolysis that would take them apart again. So there's a constant process of making these clots and taking them apart, depending upon the situation in the blood. But the clots get made, these fibrin units get made, and they're very sturdy and they can't be broken down. And then, of course, they become um, blood clots that can get into the lungs and cause pulmonary thrombosis and things like that. So that's where we're seeing, I think, uh, some very serious um, consequences to the vaccines. There's a huge, uh, we have a whole table in our paper about thrombosis um, showing that extremely high, I think it was 99% of the cases relating to thrombosis were COVID vaccines, 1% for all the other vaccines. I mean, there's just a huge signal there for these conditions with associated with these vaccines. But that, it makes sense to me, the spike protein being amyloidogenic, because it basically can cause this kind of misfolding that ends up with these knots that can't be broken down. And it, it can, whatever other proteins in the blood are capable of joining that, that party are going to make this big mess. You know, it's just going to make these fibrin clots that are, very difficult to break down because of the uh, influence of the spike protein through its prion-like characteristic. You know, that's these prion proteins that can cause other proteins to misfold in this way that it precipitates out. Let's end on that, on the prions, because that's <laughs> pretty interesting stuff. I've been reading, I've been keeping up with that and I don't understand it all, but I've been keep trying to keep up the best I can. From the beginning, there was a paper early on talking about spike protein. It is a prion, correct? It is. It's prion-like, they call it. But there's basically the prion protein, which is the one in humans that's associated with uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, CJD, which is the human mad cow. So it's mad cow in the cows. Every animal seems to have a prion protein. It's a specific protein. You know, the deer have one, and et cetera. So it causes CJD, uh, their their, uh, chronic wasting disease, CWD, in the deer. So you have all these uh, prion proteins. But then you have prion-like proteins, which is which are also associated with neurodegenerative disease. Like in Alzheimer's, you have amyloid beta, you have alpha-synuclein associated with Parkinson's disease, you have uh, TDP43 or something that's connected to uh, ALS, you know, all these different, lots of different proteins can misfold and cause disease. And then you have foreign proteins from other species that can contribute to that whole process because they also are very easy to misfold to cause disease. And that's what's characteristic of this spike protein. It's a quite unique characteristic of it that it has. And and so I found a paper recently that talked about seven different segments of that, of the spike protein that looked like they had, they had prion-like characteristics because they sort of have this definition and they can use this computer science to try to figure out. And one in particular that they showed actually shows up when the protein gets broken down, it gets chopped into pieces. And one of those pieces was spot on with one of the regions that they had identified as being um, able to misfold. And so it, 
you basically, when you cut the spike protein up into pieces, so some of those pieces can become really toxic and they can trigger other proteins to misfold in kind of a catalytic response, like a crystal, like forming a crystal. So you've got this S1 piece of the spike protein that gets chopped off by the furin at the, at the furin cleavage site. That's also a unique property of SARS-CoV-2 is this furin cleavage site chops off this S1. The S1 contains the H2 receptor binding domain. So you've got these S1 units floating around in the blood, attaching to H2 receptors and messing up the heart, for example, and causing high blood pressure. And then, um, and then it's got that prion-like capability, so they can just hook up with the fibrin and cause the fibrin to become really naughty and not be able to be broken down. So it just seems like an incredibly bad mess in the blood with all these S1s floating around causing trouble. What do you think that's going to do in the brain? Right. It can form blood clots in the brain, which can then basically cause a stroke. And that's what we're seeing. And we've seen some really nasty things, reports of blood clots in the in the venous um, cavity, the draining, the, the, the venous drainage, blood drainage system of the brain, getting blood clots, massive blood clots in there, which is completely deadly. Same thing with the spleen. The spleen and the brain have this kind of venous drainage, drainage system that um, is getting uh, blood clots, you know, lots of blood clots and killing you. So some really nasty stuff is happening with the blood. The blood is definitely being affected by this uh, vaccine in, in bizarre ways. And it's the platelets, I think you're getting antibodies to the platelets, I suspect as well. And that's something we talked about, I think, in the paper. Yeah, um, the thrombocytopenia, that's... That's right. Yeah. The, the, that it's like heparin doc- sulfate. Uh, it's like the heparin, heparin. When you take heparin treatment, you can get this kind of backfiring um, problem with thrombosis um, that this is emulates emulates that yes with the spike proteins in the brain and these prion like capabilities are you worried at all about i'm very worried i'm very worried about neurodegenerative disease i think that i predict that um, we're going to see an upswing we're going to see people getting uh, alzheimer's parkinson's um, als cjg um, earlier in life than they would normally get it. We're seeing, going to see 40-year-old people getting, you know, these serious diseases. Um, and and then also people who would not ever have gotten it are going to get it maybe later, you know. So it's basically, I think it's going to uh, cause an increase in all of these diseases and it's going to cause it uh, younger and younger people to be affected because these diseases mostly are uh, diseases of old age. They take decades to develop and, uh, and they found that you can find evidence of Parkinson's you know, misfolded proteins linked to Parkinson's disease 20 years before the Parkinson's actually shows up. It's a very slow disease process. So I think we're just greasing the wheels. We're getting everybody closer to the point where they're going to have one of these horrible diseases um, than they would have if they hadn't gotten the shot. So think about that to the listeners. And I thought about this prior to COVID with the rates of neurodegenerative diseases skyrocketing and the rates of autism concurrently skyrocketing, we're getting it on both ends. So eventually, I mean, what does that mean for the species, right? Like, it's- I know, I know. I, I really worry about our reproductive capacity. And that's another thing that's showing up. I, I read some interesting data from Hungary where they had looked at, they had good data there for um, at the county level for the vaccine rate, uh, the rate of um, vaccine uptake and for the number of babies being born. So they could look at that and they looked at the first quarter of this year compared to the first quarter of last year. So the same time of year, um, looking at the reproductive rate of um, the different counties and looking at their vaccine coverage. And then they, they showed the top five, the, the, the top five most highly vaccinated counties 
what was there. Everybody had a drop in birth rate, but the top five versus the bottom five, the ones that were least vaccinated. And it was a 15% drop for the top five and a 5% drop for the lower five, for the bottom five. So it's suggesting that the vaccines are causing um, fewer babies to be born for whatever reason. And more vaccines is making that stronger signal. So that's sort of evidence that uh, you know, there's a reproductive effect, which, which doesn't surprise me because it goes into the ovaries. That's one of the studies that showed that the spleen of all the organs, the spleen had the highest levels and the ovaries had the second highest for the females, which is very disconcerting because you know the spike protein causes inflammation. You know inflammation is going to cause damage to the ovaries and that's going to mean um, the germ cells. And it is disrupting sperm too, right? That study yes. just came out showing... Sperm counts were down. Yes, that's right. So we hope this is temporary, but we don't know. Yeah. And it was, I think, quite a while. That, and there was a long time period where sperm counts were down following yes, up. Very disturbing, you know. Yeah. Well, on that super high note. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's such a joy to have you on. And it, even though this information is heavy, I've been trying to get this information out and you say it just so much more succinctly and I hope that it lands with folks that to really understand what's happening here and start thinking more critically before we, especially before we yes. throw our children in line for this. I know. I think people need to uh, start learning about biology. <laughs> they have to start paying attention to it because I think a lot of people don't know anything about biology. Even when I talk about, you know, um, the protein code, you know, and, and the glycine and getting in, into the protein in place of glycine, their eyes glaze over. They have no idea what I'm talking about. It's like basic biology is not getting into the educational system, it seems like. I'm really surprised at how little people know about these things. Yeah, I say that often. And I also just want to say that something that uh, I've really been slaughtered for by my profession and by just online, I, like you, come up with hypotheses based on the knowledge that I have. And so when yes. you when you have knowledge base around certain areas and you can put it together into a thought process and you share that out and you have data to support it, that's science to me. That's how yes. I learned to do science. And it's something I see you doing often. And uh, absolutely. You're the first to say like, this is my theory. However, it's coming from a very highly educated background with a lot of different knowledge to pull from. And that's really something I admire about you. So I thank think you more for... people should be doing that. I'm actually, you know, no, it's very hard to get funding to do the kind of thing I do. I'm very lucky. I actually get funding to do this. So it's, it's wonderful. Um, but most people, um, most funders don't want to fund you to just sort of read the research literature and connect the dots and figure out and then propose hypotheses about what might be happening. I think that's critical. And I think we have a ton of literature out there that has answers in it if we could just study it enough to figure out what those answers are you know there's answers way beyond what they're reporting on but they're just they've got the blinders and they don't sort of see the larger picture but we really need to do that we really need to uh, understand and that would really guide us in how we treat too because much of what pharma is trying to do is just stupid all that effort they they did with the uh, you know amyloid beta and trying to remove the plaque and and not understanding at all what is what the plaque is about to understand, uh, you know, what's going on there and why that's happening and to understand that it's not a good idea to put that plaque back in the solution, it turns out. And, you know, they, they can get wonderful drugs that, that remove the plaque, but then it makes the disease worse, you know, and they're like, whoops. So they don't, when I mean, you don't understand the underlying biology, you can really mess up and spend a lot of money on a wasted uh, idea, you know, a stupid idea. 
Yeah, who's running these shows? That's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm like, don't they have biologists doing these studies? Like, didn't who came up with this idea of this mechanism of action? That's what I keep wondering. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's wild. Well, Dr. Senoff, you are such a gem to the planet. We need we need bodyguards around you. We need you protected <laughs> all the time because you're one of the greats. I have such admiration for you. I'm super honored that you came on here today and shared such vast knowledge. And uh, wh- where can the audience find you and your book? And yes, I have a things? webpage, stephaniesenoff.net, um, that you can go to. And I have my uh, a section there on my book and all the different uh, ways you can buy it. Uh, and, the, and it's at the publisher's side as well. Chelsea Green is the publisher, so you can get it there. Or, of course, Amazon. Um, yeah, stephaniesenoff.net. I have some other material there, too, some uh, pointers to some of my interviews. I'll put this one up because I really enjoyed this one. So if when you get it released, send me the link and I'll put it up on my website. Oh, I would be honored. I will do that. Yes. And uh, I'll make sure all the, I'll make sure that link and everything important is in the show notes for the listeners too. So great. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Such an honor. Really excited to finally meet you and uh, thank, keep shining your light. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.